Alright, so jumping into today's word, we're continuing our series in Mark. We're in Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 30. Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 30. And I'm going to be reading from the ESV, so my translation might be slightly different. Um, But the word of God reads, And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread And throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, there are sometimes passages in Scripture uh, that are very difficult to unpackage, uh, and today's is especially quite a difficult passage, especially with this interaction that Jesus has with this Gentile, Syrophoenician, Canaanite woman. Uh, But Lord, we pray that as we examine the words of Christ and just this encounter that Jesus has, uh, that we would come to understand what you are saying, your intention for Mark recording this event in Jesus' ministry and what it means for us today. Uh, Father, once again, we ask that we would come away encountering the Christ through your word and we would experience ongoing transformation by the power of your spirit. May you watch over the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, uh, if you recall last week's passage, uh, we got to read about an encounter that Jesus has with an elite debating team uh, from Jerusalem. It was a team that consisted of the greatest scholars, pastors, preachers, teachers of the day, and Pharisees as well. And this team was assembled by the Jewish leaders. And the intention for assembling a debating team uh, was to really send them to attack and discredit the integrity and reputation of Jesus. Because a lot of people were starting to follow him. Uh, There were rumors that he was the Messiah, the king that God had promised. And so that was the plan. Create a team to go attack Jesus. I I gave the analogy of a rap battle last week. That's kind of what it was like. It was like a rap battle where you destroy someone's reputation. But as you might recall, uh, the opposite happened. Um, You know, Jesus in his conversation with them. He didn't pull any punches, didn't mince any words. He was a savage, um, and he really exposed uh, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders. He pointed out the sad reality that you know the Jewish leaders had come to a point where they elevated man-made traditions and religiosity over what God had actually commanded to begin with. And in this verbal beatdown, despite uh, what the Pharisees thought, Despite what they taught, Jesus made it clear that it's not what goes into the body that matters, 
but what comes out of the body. Because what comes out of the body really was a demonstration of the condition of a person's heart. Uh, so for the, you know, the Jewish leaders, they were obsessed with external purity, ritual washing, cleanliness. But for Jesus, he was explaining that the purity and the condition of the heart ultimately is what matters in the eyes of God. And so having had this interaction, that it's what the, in, the inside that matters, the, the outside external purity doesn't matter, almost as if to really stick it to the Pharisees. And, you know, this discussion that they just had about the clean and the unclean. Uh, what Jesus does next is he chooses to go into Gentile territory. Uh, and I say that he really stuck it to the Jewish leaders because Gentile territory was cons considered to be, you know, ritually, physically unclean. Uh, it was in, you know, like verse 24, it says that he went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And if you were to ever pick a region of the world that for the Jewish leaders was like everything that we hate about the Gentiles, it was this region here, Tyre and Sidon. And the reason wasn't just because there was a heavy Gentile population, like Tyre and Sidon was just like pretty much Gentiles everywhere, but it wasn't just that. One of the reasons why the Jews hated this particular region, especially, was because it was a region known for idol worship. And not just any idol, but the worship of the goddess Ashtoreth, who was traditionally the goddess of fertility. So if you want to have a baby, worship the goddess Ashtoreth and she might grant you a baby. Now, why is that such a big deal? You know, what's so, what's so wrong about worshipping the goddess of fertility? And, you know, you, like, you, if you think about it in the context, it's like, it, it does raise that question. Why did they make such a big deal of this? Because for Jews back then, Israel back then, they're kind of like us today in the sense that they were growing up in a pluralistic culture. Rome was the, was the empire that conquered all these nations. And so they were living under the rule of the Roman Empire. And one of the things that the Roman Empire did was that when they conquered a nation, they didn't obliterate them. They adopted them. So they, they'll, they'll conquer a nation and they'll say, look, we won't kill you. We're going to give you Roman citizenship. You're going to be a part of Rome. You're going to be a part of us. And we're going to let you live, continue living the way you lived, but just know that you're going to be a part of Rome. And so they adopted a lot of cultures. But one of the things that happens when you adopt another culture is you adopt their gods and their goddesses. So... For the Roman Empire, it just became this melting pot of all these different gods and goddesses from different cultures. And that's on top of the Roman gods and goddesses as well. Because if you've ever studied Roman mythology or Greco-Roman mythology, you'll know that the Romans actually had their like an entire pantheon of gods and goddesses. And then demigods and demigoddesses like Hercules, most of you guys know, was, wasn't actually a full god. He was a demigod. Um, and this became the norm of society. There were gods, goddesses everywhere, idols everywhere, temples erected everywhere for all these different idols. And so that begs the question, what was so different about Tyre and Sidon that made this region in particular so despised by the Jews? Well, I mentioned earlier that they worshipped their main goddess, well, god, goddess, it was a female goddess, uh, was the goddess Ashtoreth, the goddess of fertility. Uh, and what was so big, you know, also bad about that? Well, what was crazy about the worship of the goddess Ashtoreth was that the worship of the goddess of fertility involved a lot of sex. 
Um, you know, when Jews and Christians worship God, you know, we're, we're in worship right now, usually our worship is defined by prayer, praise, the preaching of the word, teaching, um, fellowship. Uh, but for the worship of the goddess Ashtoreth, uh, the goddess of fertility, and also the goddess Aphrodite, the Greco-Roman goddess of love, um, worship for them involved a lot of sex, sexual orgies, and, you know, the way you'd worship them was that you'd go to the temple and you'd have sex with the temple prostitutes. This was how they considered an individual could reach enlightenment. So for us, we draw near to God by praying and the study of God's word, hearing God through the scriptures. For them, I go have sex with a prostitute, I'm closer to God or the goddess. Um, and so for us, we know that sex is a gift from God designated for a man and a woman in the context of marriage. But for them, it, it was a transactional form of worship. For them, because sex was worship, it almost became a virtue. Not too different from what we're seeing today in the world. And so that's just a bit of context to be aware of. Uh, you know, it kind of makes sense then, if you know this, why the Jews considered the Gentiles unclean. CG groups are going through Ephesians and you saw this racial prejudice and divide between the Jews and the Gentiles. And, you know, when we read about racism in the church, we're like, oh, how could they? But then if you think about that, they were just having a crazy amount of inappropriate sex with prostitutes. It's like you kind of get why the Jews felt the way they did about the Gentiles. But that's just a bit of context. And so Jesus, having just had this debate and conversation about what is pure, what is impure, in the eyes of God, what does he desire? He goes into this region of Tyre and Sidon. And verse 24 says that when he went into this region, he entered a house and he did not want anyone to know, yet he couldn't be hidden. He didn't want anyone to see him. Presumably because he was physically exhausted. That's the only explanation I can think of. He would have, you know, he was 100% God, but he was 100% man. So he felt exhaustion the way we do. He got tired, sleepy the way we do. And just like us, he needs rest. Um, if you remember from the moment he began his ministry, he really hasn't had an opportunity to just sit down, rest, and even just like enjoy a meal. Um, we saw in previous weeks that he hiked up a mountain, prayed for nine hours, hiked down a mountain, went for a stroll on the water, um, has been on boats, boat trips nonstop, been walking. You know, they didn't have cars or horses. Like, you know, as far as I know, Jesus didn't travel by horse. Uh, and so he walked everywhere. It's been nonstop since the day he began his ministry. And so he goes into this region of Tyre and Sidon, Presumably because he expects no one's going to follow him there. You know, the Jews that have been just like trailing him everywhere, they probably, you know, he assumed that they probably would have been like, oh, that's an unclean territory. We'll, we'll, we'll stop our pursuit here. Um, so he expected no one to follow him there. And probably no one expected him as a Jewish rabbi to go there. Um, but according to today's passage, we find out that that wouldn't be the case because someone does come looking for him. A woman, a woman comes looking for him, not just any woman. The passage tells us a Syrophoenician woman. And if you read Matthew's gospel, Matthew's version of this particular event, 
Uh, remember, I mentioned it's helpful to collage the details of synonymous events. Matthew's gospel says that this woman, in addition to being a woman, a Gentile, a Syrophoenician, that she was a woman of Canaanite ancestry. And to give you a bit more context, from a cultural perspective, it was unthinkable for a woman to approach a rabbi alone, directly, like this. Society back then, and even I think in some parts of that region now, very patriarchal, uh, would be considered very sexist by our standards today in the West. And so for this woman, she has her gender going against her. She's, she's a woman, she's a female, culturally inappropriate for her to be approaching a rabbi. And then on top of that, we know that she's a Gentile. She's not a Jew. So ritually, culture would have considered her to be unclean. So not only her gender going against her, but the fact that she's a Gentile, that's going against her. And then we find out she's not just a Gentile, she's not just a Syrophoenician, but she's also someone that has Canaanite ancestry. And that's just like the cherry on the, on the cake. Because if you read through the Old Testament, you find that Jews and Canaanites don't have a very good relationship. Uh, they were historically enemies. So for this woman, everything is stacked up against her. Her gender, her ethnicity, her ancestry. Everything about her makes it inappropriate for her to seek an audience with Jesus. But she does anyway. Why? Because she's desperate. If you read verses 25 and 26, it says, But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast a demon out of her daughter. The reason this woman came to see Jesus, despite it being culturally inappropriate, was because her daughter was possessed by a demon. Culturally, it was unimaginable what she was doing, but she was desperate. And desperation often will drive people to do crazy things. But if we harmonize everything uh, in Mark's gospel and Matthew's gospel, we get to see actually how desperate she was. Matthew, in Matthew's gospel in verse 22, it says, And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now, uh, as we go through our series in Mark, I'm going to be referring a lot to the Greek. But the Greek word for the verb crying in Matthew's gospel is this word ekrazen. Uh, and the word ekrazen is in what we call the imperfect tense for those that study literature. Um, and the imperfect tense, what it is, is it, it places an emphasis on the verb uh, because imperfect tenses generally imply an action that's occurring continuously over a long period of time. So it's not just like a one-off cried out once, but a crying out continuously over a long period of time. So this woman who is desperate comes to Jesus, falls down prostrate at his feet, probably groveling, just grabbing onto his feet, doesn't just come begging and crying out for help once. Doesn't just say, please, but it implies, the imperfect tense implies it was non-stop, ongoing, presumably getting louder and louder and louder. And according to Matthew's gospel, there is a detail that's included that says that Jesus initially responds with silence. 
So here she is on her knees or on her, on, like prostrate, grabbing onto Jesus saying, help me. Oh Lord, son of David, please help me. But according to Matthew's gospel, it says that he did not answer her a word. He gave her the silent treatment. It seems like he ignored her. But remember, the crying and the begging is in the imperfect tense. So this means that even though Jesus gave her the silent treatment, she kept begging. She kept crying, presumably getting louder and louder because, you know, what happens if someone gives you the silent treatment? You try even harder to get their attention. And he got to a point where even the disciples were getting annoyed and bothered by this. And they come to Jesus and they beg him. They beg the same word that the woman uh, was engaging in, this ekrazen. They also, ekrazen, started begging Jesus, send her away. Come on, Jesus, what are you doing? She's a Gentile. She's a woman. She's a Syrophoenician. She's a Canaanite. We don't need to waste our time with her. Send her away. Basically, they wanted to get rid of her because she's unclean, she's a woman, and basically because they just wanted to shut up. To them, from a cultural perspective, she's a nuisance and a burden. But then Jesus finally does speak, and he says something that when you first read it seems a little bit racist. He says to the woman, and he said to her in verse 27, and he said to her, let the children be fed first. For it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. He says, let the children, a.k.a. Israel, the people of God, let them be given the spiritual food first. Because, you know, it's not right to take the food away from the children. It's not right to take the food from Israel and give it to the dogs, a.k.a. the Gentiles. And the word dogs here, uh, it's not talking about like wild, diseased, scavenger dogs. Uh, it's instead a reference to domesticated, like, pets at home, um, which does kind of soften it a bit, uh, but it doesn't really make it any better. Um, you call it anyone a dog. Uh, there's not really a cute way you can take it. Um, and it seems like Jesus is insinuating that Jews are humans, but Gentiles are dogs. Um, and it seems quite a racist thing to say. Uh, but in the wider context of things, we'll find out that Jesus isn't a racist. Um, and that's not actually the case. And that's not what he's trying to convey. Um, instead, what Jesus is trying to express is that in terms of the rescue mission of salvation that Jesus was embarking on, the order of the gospel, salvation being spread to the world, was that it would begin with the Jews first before it would go to the Gentiles. The Apostle Paul knew this as well. So if you read Romans 1.16, that famous verse, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and then to the Gentile or to the Greek. And even if you read through the book of Acts, which is the history of the early church, the history of the gospel spreading to the ends of the earth, you find that Jesus in chapter 1, verse 8 of the book of Acts, he says to his disciples, because the disciples ask him, you know, what's going to happen with the kingdom of God? How's it going to get established? Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. 
And then he gives an order in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And sure enough, if you read through the book of Acts, you find that this promise comes through in that exact order. Because if you read in chapter 8, the deacon Stephen, he gets stoned to death and killed for preaching the gospel. And then the Christians, the early church, out of fear and cowardice, they run away because they don't want to die either. But God still uses their fear and their cowardice to spread the gospel because chapter 8 verse 1 says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. So it started in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered. They all ran away in fear throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. It spread from the Jews to the Gentiles. And then, so that's chapter 8. And then chapter 9, God saves Saul, the, the amazing Pharisee who becomes the missionary to the Gentiles. So it starts from Jerusalem, ends with the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles. And so coming back to today's passage, whilst what Jesus says in calling them dogs, whilst it's so easy to misinterpret it as a racial slur, because it really, really does sound like a racial slur, um, you call any race a dog. That's not really a good way that you can interpret that. But whilst it can be misinterpreted as a racial slur and Jesus' disdain towards the Gentiles, which he, he didn't have disdain towards the Gentiles, we soon come to understand that this silent treatment and this expression that Jesus uses was to explain the order of salvation, the way the gospel would come to the world. Uh, but there is another reason why Jesus expresses it in this way there's an intention and the intention was that this interaction that he has with the woman it would serve to achieve a particular purpose this interaction that he has with the woman would draw her faith out because we find later on that she had amazing faith and he would draw it out to the surface through this interaction for everyone especially his disciples to see because he just called her a dog. I came, she came for help, and he called her a dog. Like, if I called my wife a dog, she would bury me. It would be the end of Pastor Jay. You'd have my funeral service the next week. But she's not deterred by this. He calls her a dog. He gives her the silent treatment. Jesus says, let the children be fed first. It's not right to take food away from children and to feed it to dogs. But she presses forward with that same analogy. And she says, yes, Lord, you're right. It's not right. But even the dogs under the table get to eat the children's crumbs. It was a very witty answer. But it was a very powerful one. Because in a nutshell, she was acknowledging that she understands. She's saying, I understand the order of salvation. I understand that Israel are God's chosen people. I understand that the salvation, the gospel, comes to the Jews first before it comes to the Gentiles. It goes to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, before it goes to the ends of the earth. Her response shows that she understands this, and she's not wanting to change this. She's not seeking to steal the bread. But she's expressing to Jesus even if it's the leftovers, even if it's the crumbs, I'm satisfied with this. I will be content with the leftovers. Give me the crumbs, and that's more than enough for me.
and Jesus hearing this, he's, he, that, was the, that was the intention of calling her a dog. Very weird way to do this, but it's, it's Jesus. Who am, I, who am I to question what Jesus does? But he does this and he draws this response out so that everyone can hear her humility, her faith. And Jesus says to her in verse 29, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Matthew's gospel says something similar in verse 28 of chapter 15. It says, Jesus answered to her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. In front of his hand-picked chosen disciples, Jesus praises her faith. God incarnate praises her faith. Can you imagine this? God, the creator of the universe, is praising the integrity, the quality of the faith that you have. There's only two instances in the New Testament where God praises faith, and this woman has the honor of being one of them. Despite the fact that she's a woman, despite the fact that she's a Gentile, a Syrophoenician, despite the fact that she has Canaanite ancestry, her ancestry in her blood her bloodline has a history of being the enemy of God's people. But Jesus looks past all of this because why? Remember that conversation he had with the Pharisees just last week? It's not about what's on the outside, but the condition of the heart. He sees her desperation. He sees her humility. But most importantly, he sees her faith. He sees her faith, and so he praises her. He grants her her request, and her daughter is freed from the oppression of the demon. And it must have been a ferocious oppression, because any other time you see a demonic possession in the New Testament, the demon is cast out, and the person just goes on their way. You know, uh, when Jesus went across the sea a few weeks ago and we saw that naked demon-possessed man screaming at the top of his lungs. This was a guy that was just physically oppressed by an entire legion of demons. No one could chain him down. He was so powerful. But the moment Jesus casts him out, where does he go? He goes on a mission trip. But for this girl, the oppression must have been ferocious because after that demon leaves her body, when the mother goes home, she finds her daughter lying down, presumably out of exhaustion. And that's how the passage ends. Now, there's a few... I always struggle with observations and applications because I don't want to sound too cliche. Um, but I thought instead of a very practical application, like, let's do this from today, uh, I thought it'd be good to make an observation or a few observations about this Syrophoenician Canaanite woman. Because uh, there, is, there, there is something very powerful about her faith and the way she approaches Christ and just the integrity of her heart, her humility, her desperation. And I'm hoping that as we observe what I'm going to share with you, uh, it'll really shape the way we approach Christ and the way we relate to Christ and ultimately the way we pray. The first observation I want to make is that this Syrophoenician woman recognized that her help 
could only come from the Christ. She recognized her help could only come from the Christ. I mentioned earlier that this encounter happened in the region of Tyre and Sidon, which is where this woman was from. It was a very Gentile part of the world. It was a, it was a region that was ruled by, just plagued with idol worship. Everywhere you went, there was idol worship, and particularly the goddess Ashtoreth. Outside the realms of Judaism, the rest of the world, it was very, very pluralistic. Everywhere you walked in the street, there would have been idols, trinkets, shrines, temples. And even if you look at the Greco-Roman gods of the day, like you got most of you guys have studied Roman mythology. Uh, and even if you look at, I don't know if the, I think the Avengers borrow some of it as well. I don't know. If you're a Marvel fan, you'll know that there's so many gods. Um, but even if you look at the Greco-Roman gods, you had Zeus, the god of thunder, the god of the gods. Uh, you had Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Uh, if you play, if you like PlayStation games and you've played the god of war, you'll know Kratos, who was the god of strength and power. Morpheus, the god of sleep. Poseidon, the god of the sea. Thanatos, the god of death. Asclepius, the god of medicine. That's just a few. That's like barely scratching the surface of how many goddess, gods and goddesses there were. And this woman would have grown up in Tyre and Sidon seeing just an endless amount of gods. She just had an endless choice of gods and goddesses that she could have worshipped. You know, you had a god and goddess for everything. And yet out of all of these gods and goddesses, she could have gone to Asclepius, the god of medicine. She could have gone to Ashtoreth, the goddess of fertility, because it's her daughter. But she chose to place her hope in none of these. And she chose instead to pick Christ and come to Christ. Being a Gentile, other than secondhand information, other than the rumors that she heard, she probably didn't know that much about Christ. But today's passage and Matthew's gospel does show us what she did know. And we see what she knew by the way she refers to him. Because she comes to him saying, O Lord, Kurios, son of David. What do these words mean? Well, O Lord, son of David are Old Testament descriptors that are a reference to the Jewish Messiah, the Savior that God would promise. So she didn't understand all the ins and outs of who Jesus was. She probably had no idea what the doctrine of the Trinity was, that he was the second person of the Godhead, son of God himself. But at the core of her desperation, she did understand that this Christ was the Savior. She did understand that because he was the Jewish Messiah, that he was her only hope. Her answer and her hope could be found nowhere else. And the proof of this is that when Jesus gives her the silent treatment, when he says in front of her, this bread is for the children, not for the dogs, when he calls her a racial, you know, refers to her with a racial slur, when the apostles say to Jesus, get rid of her, she's a Gentile, she's a woman, she's a Gentile, she's a Syrophoenician, she's a Canaanite, she's the enemy of our people. She, she, she heard all this. And I think any normal person that has an array of options, an array of gods and goddesses, hearing this probably would have responded, you know, I, I, I'm not welcome here. Maybe, maybe I'll find my answer elsewhere. 
but she doesn't do that. What does she do? She cries out in the imperfect tense, meaning that she gets louder and louder. She clings to him even more in desperation, and she cries and begs without ceasing. The Syrophoenician woman understood that only Christ could help her. She understood that despite the pantheon of gods and goddesses at her disposal, that the only true hope that she had could be found in Christ alone. And she responded accordingly. She clung to him and begged him as her only source of hope. Point number two. This Syrophoenician woman persevered in prayer. She persevered in prayer. Whilst there is a physical interaction going on between Christ and the woman, ultimately, this interaction can really be summarized, or really summarizes, in my opinion, what intercessory prayer is all about. Inter intercessory prayer is when you intercede, when you, when you pray for someone else, when you lift another person up to God. Because in a nutshell, what was this woman doing? She was interceding on behalf of her daughter. Her daughter was ferociously oppressed by a demon, physically was incapacitated and incapable of coming to Christ herself. So her mother comes to Christ on her behalf. And if we examine today's passage, there's so many qualities about this woman that we can adopt into our prayer life. We see, for example, her humility. Despite the discouraging response from Jesus and the apostles, she's willing to accept even the breadcrumbs. She says, I'm willing to accept even the crumbs, the leftovers, because I know that's enough. I know I don't deserve it, but I also know that that's enough. So she comes to Jesus in humility. We see also her faith. In the last point, I just explained that she had an array of gods and goddesses at her disposal. There was a god and goddess for everything you could think of. Bad back? There's a god for back pain. Go worship that. Like, there were so many. Oh, you got a headache? There's, there's, a, there's a god for headaches, headache cures. You know, I hear a lot of people that, oh, I want a girlfriend. I want, I want, I want to find my... There was, a, there was a god and goddess for that. Having trouble with your dating life? Go see this goddess. Pay a few dollars and, you know, your dating life will go amazing. But this woman demonstrates her faith. She rejects all these gods and goddesses because she knows every other path is futile. So there was her humility, her faith, but for me, the most amazing aspect of her intercession was her pers perseverance, her persistence. Because remember when we saw the crying out and the begging, I explained that in the Greek it used imperfect tense. It's an ongoing, never-ending petitioning and praying. It's like when you talk about imperfect tenses, when you, you, know, when you link it with prayer, it just literally means praying and praying and not stopping, which is often how we're told in the New Testament to pray. Be ceaseless in your prayer. And that for me is probably one of the most critical aspects of intercessory prayer. We always ought to have this quality in our arsenal when it comes to shaping the way we intercede for other people. Being unceasing, being persistent, being fervent in our prayer life. And as I studied this passage, it reminded me of 
a pastor I met when I first became a Christian. Uh, I became a Christian at the age of 21. I was an atheist, very committed atheist prior to that. But after I became a Christian, I had the privilege of meeting a lot, a lot of people that were just dedicated, willing to give everything over to prayer. And there was this one particular pastor who was almost like a spiritual father to me, still is. And out of all the men I've ever met, this is probably the most incredible man of prayer still living today that I've had the honor of meeting. This guy just loved God, loved God's people. But he was also a man that was obsessed with prayer. Like, I would say almost to an unhealthy extent, to the point where it impacts his health. Like, he's got bad knees. Um, he's got arthritis in his knees because of how much time he spends in prayer. But I remember asking him, because I knew how much he prayed. He would spend hours every morning just praying for everyone, praying for the people in his church, praying for unbel unbelievers, praying for the government, praying for Australia, like just everything. He just spent so much time in prayer. And I remember I asked him one day, because he was praying for particular people in the church that were just, just, I don't even know why they showed up to church. They hated Christ. They didn't want anything to do with the gospel. And I said to him, how long would you pray for these people? Like, I'm not talking about, like, how long per day do you pray? But how long will you pray for these people before you stop praying for them? And he gave me an answer that I will never forget. He said to me, Jay, there are only three reasons you should ever stop praying for someone. The first reason is that you've died. Obviously, if you're dead, you can't pray for them. The second is they've died. Well, the third is that God has answered your prayer. There is no other legitimate reason to stop praying for that person. And he said that to me, and he walked off. And I was like, wow. like I stood, I was like dumbfounded. I was so blown away by that answer. I realized after a few seconds, I just stood there for like 20 seconds going, wow. wow. Like I, was, I was so moved. Not because it was so profound, like that it was a profound answer. Because, but because it's true. Anyone that's been following Christ for any period of time, if you hear that and you understand what the New Testament says, you realize that that's not radical of God's people. That's not the radical expectation of God's people. That should be normal. You either die, they die, or God answers. Final point, the Syro-Phoenician woman experienced the power of God firsthand. And this will be what I end my sermon on. Uh, but this point, I'm not addressing this point as a pastor or a preacher. I'm not addressing this as someone that's gone to Bible college, but I'm addressing this as a fellow Christian that walks with Jesus, just like you guys. Because... You know, this passage made me think a lot about when I experienced my conversion 16 years ago. After my conversion, my Korean is still bad now. It was even worse back then. There were no English ministries back then. If you wanted to hear an English sermon, your only option was to go to an Aussie church. But I would attend Korean churches. And there was a period where testimonies was like the thing 
Like you have a conference, testimonies was, was, the, was the thing to, to listen to. And, you know, the church I was at, they invited a lot of people over a, you know, a period of time to come in and did, like, give their testimonies. And I, I listened to a lot of crazy, amazing testimonies of the power of God and how it transformed these people's lives. I, I, I listened to an ex-gangster in, from Korea. He was like a loan shark. Uh, uh, like just, He went to jail. He, he abused, physically abused his wife. And then he became a Christian. And then everything changed. And then he became a pastor. He went to Bible college. And then he became an ordained preacher of the word. Given over to sharing the gospel. And he came and he shared his testimony. And there's something very special when you hear an ex-gangster talk about their love for Christ. You're just like, wow, that's amazing. And then I heard of people, missionaries, that went to the mission field. And they come and give their testimony about God did impossible things. Like defying logic to advance his kingdom. And you hear that and you go, wow. And then you hear about guys that just like, you know, they, had, they were addicted to drugs and alcohol and just their the life was a complete mess. And then you hear about how against all the odds, God broke the chains of addiction in their life. And you're like, whoa. And I loved it. Every single one of their testimonies was moving and genuine But I remember as I kept hearing these testimonies, after a while, I started to get sick of it. Not because the testimonies were bad, not because these weren't legitimate, like it was amazing what God's people did in their lives, but what I was getting sick of was hearing about how the power of God was working in other people's lives about being so impressed about what God's doing in this person's life, applauding and getting goosebumps, and then that's it. I got sick of it because as God's people, we're not called to live out our faith through the lives of other people. We're not called to be satisfied with secondhand experiences about what we heard God do in this person's life. And in the same way, I think this Syrophoenician woman was exactly the same. She heard the rumors. She heard people. She probably saw people in a community that went to see Jesus and got healed. She wasn't satisfied with secondhand testimonies, living out what Jesus did through the life of this person. But she wanted to experience the power of Christ in her life. Not a secondhand experience, but a firsthand experience so that she could say to other people, I have experienced the power of God. I haven't just heard about it. I haven't just seen it. I have felt it and witnessed it in my own life. And that's my hope for all of us. You know, when I was at Bible college, I remember my first ever lecture. It was a New Testament lecture. Oh, sorry, not New It was an Old Testament, Old Testament foundations subject. And my lecturer was my favorite lecturer at college. I think he's the greatest preacher in Sydney, Jeff Harper. I don't think he listens to my sermons, but he's the greatest Old Testament preacher in my opinion. And he said to the class, don't take this time at college for granted. Pour everything you have in your studies because this limited amount of time is going to shape how you allow other people to encounter Christ so that they have a first-hand encounter with Christ. Don't just be focused on learning. Don't just be focused on giving second-hand 
knowledge, point them to have a first-hand experience with Christ. There's a lot we can learn from this Syrophoenician woman. She understood that only Christ could help her. She was someone that persevered in prayer. But she was also someone that wasn't satisfied with experiencing God secondhand. She wanted it for herself. So we've got a prayer meeting this Friday. It's a shameless plug to advertise the prayer meeting. But we have a prayer meeting this Friday. And prayer is not easy. It's hard. Especially if you haven't prayed for, you know, if it's not a discipline that you have in your life. Getting started in creating a prayer life isn't easy. But hopefully in the context of community, we can work together to create a discipline of prayer. So I do encourage you all to come if you have time. And on that note, uh, I'm going to conclude this sermon uh, with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we, we thank you for this Syrophoenician woman. We thank you for Mark just being faithful in recording this account. And we, Lord, we pray that this would shape the way we intercede for others and interact with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.